Our reading this morning, our first reading is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, followed by Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 to 10. Isaiah chapter 9, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Chapter 11, 1 to 10. A shoot will come from the stump of Jess. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he says, sees with his eyes, or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteous, righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with his rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and lion and the yearling together. And the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young, they are young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand in the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on, my on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. In that day, the root of Jess will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rise to him and his resting place will be glorious. The word of the Lord. Thank you, John, for the scripture reading today. Thank you, Narada, for praying. And uh, thanks to our wonderful worship team uh, who's leading us this morning. We know it's a busy time of year, and uh, it's great to see you all. Welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're joining us. A special welcome if you're joining us online. Uh, we'd love to see you in person. Uh, we know that's not always possible, and uh, we look forward to one day uh, doing that. Uh, 
want to say uh, also a special welcome. You're going to hate me for this, but welcome back to Dave and Alyssa who've been traveling Australia for the year. So great to see you guys. What a great surprise this morning. It's like an early Christmas present. Uh, good, to, good to have you here today. Uh, well, we are starting a new series, and if you've had enough of pain, I can't control what's going on in your life, but uh, I can tell you we're, we're going to move on from that topic uh, in the Sunday morning sermon. And we're going to begin our Advent series, uh, which is themed around the Prince of Peace, which is one of the titles that's given to uh, this child uh, that is promised in Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, so I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. That's where we'll be uh, today, uh, and we'll be dipping around a little bit, so you may want to have your, your thumb or your, your page-turning finger back and forth, or your scrolling, uh, your scrolling finger, uh, if that's not too sore from the week already. Uh, but welcome. It's great to, great to be with you uh, today. Uh, many of you are going on holiday. Raise your hand if you've got a holiday planned in the next, let's say, eight weeks. Anybody going out of town in the next eight weeks? Raise your hand. Wow. How about the next three months? Anybody? The next three months? Yeah, sort of. Um, I don't know if you find this to be true, but when you go, when you go on a holiday, uh, the, the first time you get back, sort of those first few conversations, they're like, how was your holiday? And you're like, oh, let me tell you about it. It's so amazing, you know? We went to this place, and we saw this, and we had this food, and it was so good. But by the time, like, the fifth or sixth person asks you, you're just like, yeah, it was good. Yeah, it was, it was fine. It was good. Yep. Uh, and, and, you know, and then, like, a few months go by, and someone's like, hey, how was the holiday? You're like, what are you talking about? Oh, yeah, that's right. I went on holiday about, about five, five or six months ago. We, we have uh, this ailment where good things that become too familiar to us kind of lose their, lose their buzz, don't they, right? They lose their joy, lose their enthusiasm. And, and I, don't, I don't think it's much different when it comes to Christmas. Uh, so as we begin this Advent series, um, I want to just remind us of, of a few things. This is a bit of an overview. Advent, it's the first season of the Christian calendar, and it comprises the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. I know we're late. It's okay. Uh, the word Advent, it means coming or it means arrival. And so in this way, uh, it can be used to describe both Jesus' first and his second coming. Uh, so Advent is, is a wonderful way of tying the incarnation and the second coming of Jesus. And this year we're going to look at it by uh, examining his title, Prince of Peace. So this is what's coming up over the next few uh, gatherings in the month of December. Uh, so uh, today we'll be talking about the promised prince. And then uh, next week, peace in heaven. Pastor Eddie will preach on the 24th about peace on earth. Uh, and then Christmas Day, we'll talk about the Prince of Peace, Jesus. And then uh, on the 31st, uh, Pastor Chris is going to lead us on that Sunday uh, talking about the peace of God with us. So that's a bit of where we're going. Uh, but as we, as we come to discuss this promised prince, uh, I want to ask you, how do you hear the coming of Jesus? You're going to hear it, I don't know how many times this Christmas season. You're going to hear it in Christmas carols, you're going to hear it in Christmas cards, you're going to hear it here at church, you're going to hear it in family conversations, you'll probably hear it in some sort of joking manner a number of different times or different ways, but how are you going to hear it? And, and, and I think how we hear it often kind of depends on the way that it's told to us. 
And so I want us also to think about which, which of these best describes our telling of the Christmas story. Is our telling of the Christmas story primarily traditional? Well, kids, this is a Christian home, so let me tell you what Christians believe about Jesus. And we repeat the lore. Maybe our telling of Christmas is in this mythical, almost kind of fictional sort of telling of the story where we emphasize all of the cute little nuggets and, and, and we, we blow the story up with all the sentimentality and the, the feelings that are associated with sort of the cuteness of the story. Maybe we tell the story as, as inspirational. And, and so, you know, w the way we, we talk about Christmas, it's kind of a grab bag or a smorgasbord of, of what you want to get out of it. You know, what are you trying to get out of this Christmas season? And, and so, you know, the encouragement when we tell the story is, to, you know, find your part in the story and find the thing that really, uh, that, that really drives you and encourages you. Maybe we tell it in a, in a dry historical manner. Well, you know, this is, this is sort of the history. This is what happened. Da, da, da. Maybe we tell it dutifully. This is what we're supposed to do. <laughs> we're not really all that excited about it, but, you know, lather, rinse, repeat. Here comes December. <laughs> Let's talk about Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. Maybe we talk about it in reverential tones, fanciful tones. How do we hear the coming of Jesus? And I love this image, and, and Janelle does a fantastic job with graphics for us. Uh, but this image was, was too good to pass up. These are the names that are described we're going to look at today. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Ever Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But those words just kind of roll on the page, and your eye is drawn to, like, the straw and the, uh, and the box, right? We're drawn to, the, to that factor. The big idea today is that Jesus' birth is joyful because it ushers in God's plan for peace. That's why we say Merry Christmas. That's why we say Happy Christmas, depending on which country you're from. And I don't know if you've told the Christmas story this way, but in Scripture... What happens in Bethlehem is an answer to a promise. Have you ever considered telling the Christmas story prophetically? Sharing the story of Jesus' coming as fulfillment. Jesus' birth is joyful because it ushers in God's plan for peace. That's what we're going to see uh, today. And we're going to focus on that last title, Prince of Peace, over the next few weeks. I encourage you to come back tonight if you want to hear about these other things. We're kind of doing something different tonight. We're doing sort of three sermonettes. Uh, Pastor Chris, uh, Pastor Eddie, and myself, we're going to each take five minutes on those other titles. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Uh, but Prince of Peace is going to be the theme we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. So, with the, by way of introduction... Um, I will wrap it up there and let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the way that you uh, speak to us and the way that you have opened heaven and come down to us. Thank you uh, for your word, which is true, 
and firm. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would enable us today to see Jesus and to understand your plans and purposes through the scriptures. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So here's the outline today. It's for us to understand how Christmas fits into God's plan for peace. Uh, We must first understand the joy promised by God's prophet in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Um, And that, that first idea might be challenging to you, that Christmas is not about a rest. It's not about holiday. It's not about presents. It's not about sentimentality. It's not about family. It's not about any of that, actually. It's about God's plan. It's about God's plan for peace, and that's the reason for joy at Christmas. And we're going to look at what is promised in this joy, how how we get there by sort of trying to answer three questions. The first is, who was the joy promised to? Second question, how would God bring the joy? And thirdly, has God kept this promise? If we're going to understand how to approach Christmas, and how God's plan for peace works. We need to be able to answer these three questions that come out of this prophecy. Who was the joy promised to? How would God bring the joy? And has God kept the promise? And I hope that at the end, you'll see that the joy of Christmas is that the promised prince has indeed come. But that has nothing to do with your gifts. (laughs) And it has nothing to do with tinsel. And it has nothing to do with Santa Claus. And it has nothing to do with all these other accoutrements that the world tries to load in to your own personal, emotional, religious, spiritual sleigh and tug around with you. I love all those things. But the joy that is associated with Christmas is about God's plan for peace. Look with me. to try, as we try to answer this question, who received God's promise of joy? Now, again, if you just focus on Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, which is sort of traditionally what people do, you're going to miss kind of the sweeping story of when this joy actually is promised. You're going to miss what's going on in the background. So I've tried to sort of summarize some key bits of Isaiah 6 to 8 in these bullet points. So Isaiah spoke these words to God's people who were in the kingdom of Judah. This is the southern kingdom. David was from the line of Judah. This was over 700 years before Jesus. Over seven centuries before Christ. This prophecy, this promise was given under new and wavering leadership. (laughs) It was given in a time when God's people were at war with the northern neighboring superpowers of Assyria. And it was given to God's people who were compromised by wealth and idolatry. That's the heading, but I want to dip our toes into a few places so you can sort of get a sense of what's going on when this word comes. Isaiah chapter 6 begins what some commentators call Isaiah's memoir, his remembrance of what's going on. And you'll recall that famous passage in Isaiah chapter 6 when Uzziah, this king, passes away. He'd been on the throne for decades and he finally passes away. He led a lot of prosperity for the southern kingdom. And in that year, Isaiah the prophet gets his commission. He sees the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And here's the seraphim singing the threefold, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. And, and, and at the end of this commissioning, Isaiah overhears 
the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Here I am, send me. What follows from that is God saying that destruction is coming to the kingdom of Judah. But it's not going to happen yet. And Isaiah is given a prophetic ministry that is represented in part through the life of his children. And so he has one son who is named Shear Jashub. I wouldn't name somebody that, but that's, that's what his name was. And his name meant Shear Jashub. Let me just find my place here. Uh, his name means a remnant will return. So he's got one son, and his son is named a remnant will return. Another son is promised, named Emmanuel, which we all know means God's with, God with us. And then when that child is born, the child is given a, a, a name, this is a big one, Mahar Shal, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which means, this must have been a great name, uh, which means something to the effect of quick to the plunder, quick to the spoils. So one son says, a remnant's going to come back. And another son is called, they're going to get your stuff and they're going to get it quick. <laughs> and Isaiah says to the king, King Isaiah says, yeah, these are my kids. And these kids, they're assigned to you and they're assigned to the people. But Isaiah is given good news when he goes to this new king Ahaz. And the good news is that even though the northern kingdom is getting attacked, Judah isn't going to be overrun. But Ahaz, he's, as one commentator put it, he's a wheeler and a dealer. He's a little more interested in his own agenda, his own plans, his own initiative. And so when Isaiah comes to him and he says, hey, trust the Lord, Ahaz says, yeah, I'm a little bit too scared of relying completely on the Lord. In fact, Isaiah says, ask him for a sign. Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to ask him for a sign. I don't want to test the Lord. And Isaiah says, no, you're supposed to. This is the part where you say, give me the sign. He says, no, I won't do it. And then you get that wonderful promise in Isaiah 7. And so the king is a bit wavery. He's a bit shaky. And so even though the promise is that, that the Assyrians wouldn't overrun Judah, there is still destruction that's going to come. It's sort of backing and forthing. And if you read chapter 8, you get, a, you get a bit of a sense of what's going on for the people. The Lord says in verse 11 of chapter 8, do not call conspiracy everything this people call a conspiracy. This is verse 12. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He's the one you are to fear. He's the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place or a sanctuary, as some translations put it. For both Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a snare and a trap. Many of them will stumble, they will fall and be broken, they will be snared and captured. What's going on? You see, the people in their comfort and in their prosperity, they had lost touch with God. They stopped answering his phone calls. <laughs> 
God, send me a text. <laughs> I'll read it later. They would have been Facebook friends with God. They would have had a, a social media relationship, absolutely. But they'd lost touch with that intimacy with him. The people collectively had stopped hanging on his word. They stopped building their life on the foundation of his truth. And instead, they're beginning to panic. As D.A. Carson put in his writing on this text, he put it so beautifully, he said, when people, I'm going to paraphrase, when people stop hanging on to the word of the Lord, and when they stop fearing the Lord, they begin to see conspiracies everywhere. They begin to see agendas everywhere. And when you're not trusting the Lord, don't be surprised if you start grabbing for control of all the levers you can think of in your life. Because when you're not trusting the Lord, the future is scary, isn't it? Your present might be really scary. The future is even scarier. And this explains a little bit of what we see in verse 19. We read this, when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone doesn't speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. They will, they, then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. What Isaiah is describing here is, is a people, is a nation, is a culture who, having lost touch with their God, it's their God, and having lost touch with their God, they begin to fall for anything, any conspiracy theory, any sort of political agenda. And what they're looking for is some way of knowing and controlling the future, be it via majority, be it via prosperity or wealth, be it through the spiritual occult practices, basically anything other than God. I mean, listen to this. Isaiah says people are going to go up to them and say, look, if you really want to know what's going on, you got to get in touch with this spiritual energy. I imagine it say something like, go buy some crystals. Go see a palm reader. Go check out your horoscope. Buy this thing. Buy this package, you know. They begin to indulge in things that are totally detached from God. And what it amounts to is spiritual adultery or idolatry. In other words, human beings, instead of worshiping and loving and knowing their creator, they worship the things that they make with their hands, the things that they can control, the things that they craft. <laughs> And the description is so appropriate, isn't it? Because the Bible says that having let go of God and having pursued all these other forms of knowledge and, and false understanding, when they don't get clear guidance 
i.e. when they're lost and wandering around in the desert and they begin to crave truth, they begin to crave living water, they begin to crave real peace and real security, and they don't find it, they then begin to curse God and say, why haven't you come through for us? Why haven't you been faithful to us? You see... And it's in this place that they are in great darkness. Let me tell you something. When the people who know God forsake God, when they lose touch with his truth, when they stop listening to his word, when they stop following him, when they stop obeying him, it's a really dark place. It may look like light, We know that the devil himself masquerades as an angel of light. It may look like light, but it's not light. And inevitably, that false light will go out. And in the darkness, in this sad darkness, the people are totally helpless. And that's how we come to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, which says... Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and Nephtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. It is in the context of this, a prosperous people who couldn't really see a need for God anymore who were happy to be associated with him, but didn't walk hand in hand with him. To these people, upon whom their plunder and and the destruction of all that they'd built up was going to come swiftly, God says, there's going to be no more gloom for you. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. You see, when the scriptures speak about the promised Messiah, it's not, it's not as if God is sort of looking for beautiful language. It's not as if he's sitting there saying, you know, I wonder what's going to give people a great, just with, this will be really inspirational. This is going to go great on coffee mugs and Christmas cards, and, and we can do all sort of lovely paintings about this. Let's, let's go with the light and the dark metaphor. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Isn't that beautiful? No, it's spiritual, literal darkness. A not knowing, an inability to navigate the way back. A lack of understanding, a lack of an ability to perceive upon these people, God shines a light. These are the people who receive the promise And it's a promise initially of just joy. Verse 3, you've you've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. As in the days of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them. Midian's defeat is the story of Gideon. I don't know if you remember the story of Gideon. God's people are being oppressed. They're being ransacked all the time. It's so bad that they have to thresh their wheat in wells or wine presses. 
They have to do it under cover of darkness and in secrecy. They can't even actually reap the rewards of their work in broad daylight because as soon as they do reap the rewards of their work, it's going to be stolen by their enemies. They can't fight them. They can't beat them. And God calls this man Gideon who, although the angel speaks of him as mighty warrior, it's more foretelling than describing and Gideon goes to fight the army of Midian at the Lord's command, but God says, you got too many people, too many. And after a series of signs and a series of, of commands, God whittles the whole army down to 300 people. And God says, well, that's, that, that'll do. And as they're standing above the valley where this army is camping, God provides a miraculous deliverance where upon following the word of the Lord, the Midianites become absolutely terrified and they slaughter one another. Israel and Gideon literally did nothing but hold up a light and break a jar. <laughs> hold up a light and break a jar. And their enemy is entirely defeated, is entirely slaughtered. Who won that battle? The Lord did. Was it based on the cleverness of Gideon? No. Was it based on the size of his army? No. The victory that is promised to these people in Isaiah chapter 9, it's going to be like that. It's going to be completely of God. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The second question deals with how would God bring them joy? We saw the first, the first part, is that he's going to do it by his soul, grace, and initiative. Verse 7 says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. He's going to give the victory, he's going to do it through victory and through a lasting peace. I'm going to sit down for a second, I'm getting sore. And all the people who say, why don't you ever sit down? You can say, here, I'm sitting down. <laughs> I know it's out of love, I know it's out of so Isaiah predicted this joy would come, and it's going to come because it's going to come through God's soul initiative, and it's going to come through his grace. And the result is going to be a joy that comes from victory and a peace that doesn't end. This is what the language here in verse 5 is all about. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, for fuel for the fire. All your tanks, all your artillery, all your uniforms, just go ahead and burn it. You're never going to need it anymore. Put the AK-47s away. Destroy all the ammunition. Put, put all, you know, get rid of all the nukes. You're just not even going to need it anymore. Because there will be no more striving, no more war, no more rising up, no more destruction. I don't know about you, but this year that feels like a great reason for joy. He predicted their joy would come through the humble form of a child. Verse 6, to us a child is born. The emphasis is on the fact that he's a child, not, not to us. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. Notice verse 4. Previously, the people had a yoke that burdened them. They had a bar across their shoulders. But now the government is on the shoulders of this child. 
God's going to bring them joy through the royal line of a king. He's going to bring them joy through the personal authority of God himself. Read verse 7. Excuse me, 6 and 7. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is four pairs of names. Wonderful Counselor means this supernatural wisdom. One who is greater than Solomon. Mighty God is a title that is used only to refer to God himself. Everlasting Father refers to the kind of relationship this king is going to have with his people. This is reason for joy, isn't it? Has God kept this promise? Verses, chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. At Christmas, we see that God has kept this promise specifically. Despite the ambiguity that it's going to be a child and it's going to be a king and it's going to be on David's throne. And you're wondering, and it's going to be, <laughs> David's throne's in Jerusalem, but the child is, is going to be in Galilee of the nations. D despite all this sort of ambiguity, the child who has no name, it has a specific fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This is the testimony of the New Testament. That Jesus Christ is the son of David. That Jesus Christ reigns on David's throne. There's a, specific, a specificity about the Messiah. Despite the ambiguity of this promise. This is what Matthew in particular is very careful to point out in his, in his work in the Gospels. We also know that this promise is fulfilled accurately, despite the fact that it's very complex. As I said, how is a king on David's throne going to appear in Galilee of the Gentiles? This is a bit random, isn't it? As Nathaniel famously said, what good can come out of Nazareth? <laughs> so there's a specificity in who this child is, even though even though he's not named here in chapter 9. There's an accuracy, despite how complex these prophecies fit together. This promise is kept partially. <laughs> in the sense that if we look at chapter 11, some of these things have come true and some have not. If you're in chapter 11, you'll see a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. This, this has been fulfilled. You remember Jesus standing in the synagogue at Nazareth, his hometown. They give him the scroll. He opens it up to Isaiah 61, where it says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. He's appointed me to spread good news. He rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, sits down and says, Hey, everybody, today this promise came true. <laughs> and they're like, What? <laughs> you can't say that. <laughs> And they walked him to the edge of the cliff to throw him off because he must have been blaspheming. But he passed through. 
He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Well, I think he did that. And then we read, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Oh, I don't know if we've seen that yet. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Well, that, that's true. The wolf will, lie with the lamb, will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed the bear, will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. I don't think I'm putting my kid in a viper's nest yet. <laughs> hey, kids, look what we got you for Christmas. It's a basket of vipers. Have fun. Facts will be on the doorstep in minutes, right? They will, neither, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Well, I don't know if we're there yet. You see, this fulfillment is in progress. It's in process. But even though it's partially being fulfilled or has been fulfilled by Jesus as we await his second coming, we do know that, that it really has been answered because the king, he truly did come. And so we can say that this prophecy has come about. It has come to pass because the identification has been made that Jesus is this child. He is the child with four names. He is the one with wisdom greater than Solomon. He is the one who wields power that belongs to God alone, controlling wind and waves, commanding spirits, conquering over death. It is Jesus alone who can bear that title, Mighty God. So has God kept this promise? Yes. Yes. Are we still waiting for it to be fulfilled? Fully and finally? Yes. So what do we do in the meantime? What does Christmas have to teach us about God's plan of peace? I think one way to look at this question is to ask, what's on your shoulders? What's on your shoulders? Put another way, if, if God's plan for peace is a prince, this means we're not going to find peace outside of his authority. If we like this picture of lions laying down with lambs, of children being able to pet vipers and and burning all the, the munitions of war because there's really no need for fighting any longer. If we like that, then we need to understand in what way God promises to give it. 
You see, oftentimes, the grand sweeping plan of God, we, we, we reduce it down so much. And when we reduce it down to our own small life, to our own little vapor, then what we get when we do this is we begin to think something like, well, God is in control sometimes, but he's not in control at other times. We begin to think like we're living in a Star Wars movie. There's a light side and there's a dark side, and you sort of just want to make sure you're on the right side of the force. And if there's somebody that we could follow who knows how to handle the force, then maybe it'll all be okay. It's utter nonsense. According to God's word. According to God's word, he's entirely in control. His plan has not been thrown off one iota. That there is no purpose of the enemy that will stand. It's not as if God's going to throw up the scoreboard in heaven and say, well, you know, you had us in the first half. You know, the, the first half, you, you really took it to us. But, you know, we rallied, didn't we? We, we rallied. I put Jesus in the game. And, and, you know, once Jesus got on the field, well, that was sort of the end of the story. And you look up at the scoreboard, that was a narrow victory, you know, 35-34. Woo, it was a close one. That's not what heaven's going to be. The scoreboard's infinity to zero. How can we say this? Because God has established from first to last, he is the author and he is the finisher. He is the one. It is solely by his gracious initiative. It is solely by his arm, as the prophet would say, that he can accomplish salvation. He will do it because of who he is, not because of who we are. And if that's offensive to you, I'm sorry. But we need to get over ourselves. It's not about the levers we pull in life. It's about what God will do and what he has done. Now, at this point, somebody's saying, well, hold on a second. You know, we just preached through six weeks on pain, and, and life is, you know, it's like really hard. And like, you know, if God surely was here, then, then he would spare me all that pain, wouldn't he? Did he spare his own son? Peace will prevail. And God will be vindicated. And God will raise his people. Those who walk with him. Those who receive his grace and his mercy. Those who, in the words of Psalm 2, come before the son, come before the king humbly, and pledge their allegiance. If God's plan for peace is a prince, we won't find peace outside of his authority. So Christmas is about the government being on his shoulders. That's what it's about. 
Was it an act of grace? Absolutely. Was it an act of love? Absolutely. Is it, is it, is it merciful? Wonderfully merciful for God to do that. But that's it. So what's resting on your shoulders today? It's interesting how this promise that was so wonderful was spoken to people who were so afraid. You know, if you live for the world, the more stuff the world gives you, it's not going to make you more secure. If anything, it's going to make you more insecure. It's not going to make you, usually, more firm. It'll probably make you less, particularly if you're scrambling to make this sand castle hold together. But to know Jesus is to know God's peace. Verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 11 says this, in, in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner. And I love that. <laughs> I love that picture because they'd been promising a branch to come out of the stump. The picture is a tree that's been cut down and, and a branch would come out of the stump. But here, the truth comes to light, that, that the branch coming out of the stump is actually a root. And so the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. Are you rallying to Jesus this Christmas? The people were in great darkness. They had much fear. They had much worry. They had a lot of stuff too. And they were hearing a lot of voices in society of telling them how they could future-proof their life. Does it sound familiar? I'll wrap up with this. D.A. Carson uh, writes this on hope. He says, ultimately our hope is in Christ coming again. He came as predicted, but the consummation is not yet. We too, like those in Isaiah's day, are expected to trust God to take him at his word, not to fear what our culture fears, not find false security in the whispered voices of the occult or complex conspiracy theories, but to remember that God is in control and Jesus is coming back. This does not invite passivity, but genuine God-centeredness, genuine trust in God, genuine fearlessness before the changing historical tides. As the band makes their way up, the bottom line is this. God has kept his promise, and peace is right on schedule. Trust in the Lord. Wait on him. Do not be afraid. Bring yourself to him fully. Let his life dictate your life. And you will know a peace that passes understanding. Let's pray. Father, would you help us in the midst of troubling times, in the midst of a lot of just mixed messages that we get, to remember it's your message. Lord, would you give us strength through the Spirit to comprehend what you're doing in our time and in our day, that we would be a faithful people. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen.